Bob Cudmore with you on the Historian's Podcast. Joining us is author Peter Ames Carlin. How are you doing, Peter? I'm well, thank you. Peter Ames Carlin is a writer, columnist, and reporter for newspapers and magazines, including People magazine. He's author of the New York Times bestseller, Bruce, a biography of Bruce Springsteen. His new book is Homeward Bound, The Life of Paul Simon, published by Henry Holt and Company. You're a native of uh, Syracuse, New York, I understand it. Who? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. But you grew up in Seattle. Where yes. and, and I was watching you on a YouTube interview or a speech you gave where you first, that's when you first heard the music of Simon and Garfunkel when you were a little boy playing outside with your trucks over and over on the radio that people, the radios that people had then, they were playing Mrs. Robinson. That in, in, yeah, you know, it was a hot summer in Seattle in 1968. And so I was out, you know, in the afternoons, I'd be in the backyard, uh, and kind of sitting in the shade and and pushing my trucks around. And there were kids in the neighborhood, I mean, older kids, teenagers, and some guys building a wall sort of over our back wall. And, and um, you know, and, and they all had their transistor radios tuned to the same station. And, and, and Mrs. Robinson was such a huge hit, it was like every 18 minutes <laughs> I'd be hearing that, dee, 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 you know. So right. it just sort of became, that voice kind of got implanted in my in my mind and and it's and it's been there ever since and mm -hmm. now I'm 53 um and so it's it's just fascinating to think of having this one artist's voice in my head i mean i followed his career ever since that summer uh, in 1968 and and uh you know so paul's you know that voice serenaded me into preschool uh <laughs> you know through grade school and high school and into college and and there was there were always new Paul Simon or Simon and Garfunkel records to you know to have like in my ear as I was going through all these periods you know getting married, uh, having children, watching my children grow up, and you know and then you know I was listening to uh, Stranger to Stranger a little bit in the mm -hmm. car while I was driving my middle son to college this September. Yeah. So um, it's a long life <laughs> and. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and there's always been Paul Simon music in the middle of it. Well, you mentioned Stranger to Stranger. I really haven't listened to it a lot, but I did some. And there was one line in there I thought that I found kind of haunting, based on the the, the years that uh, Paul Simon's been alive. A few more than I've even been alive. I, mean, I think he's something seventy five or so. I'm just uh, gonna. Well, anyway, I'm seventy one or seventy. I kind of forget always. But he says, "Every day I'm here, I'm grateful." That's the gist of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right, you know, I mean, I think that's a very fundamental feeling. I mean, and one of, you know, Paul's great achievements, it's, you know, and the same for every other great songwriter out there, is being able to kind of take large and complicated feelings uh, that are common to, you know, to, to nearly everyone and put them into, boil them down into, you know, not only a beautiful line like that, but also tuck it in the middle of a of a song that musically and rhythmically kind of captures elements of the same feeling. Mm -hmm. And Paul has been over the years uh, a master at that, uh, one of the greatest, and I think that's why we're still talking about it. Now, a dumb question. I, I'm, you've interviewed a number of people for this book, but I never asked. Did you interview Paul Simon? No, Paul really didn't want to, uh, to have a biographer, uh, independent biographer working on a book about him. Um, 
I'd gotten plenty of of cooperation eventually from uh, from Bruce Springsteen, and uh, uh, even though that was a very independent project, um, he didn't care. And same with Brian Wilson uh, from the Beach Boys when I when I wrote a book about him ten years ago. Um, Paul, on the other hand, was not up for that, and so. It, it kind of, on the one hand, that's frustrating, and, and you really do want to be able to get close enough to someone to sort of, you know, feel how they move through the world, you know, to a degree, and what they think and how they express themselves. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I had come into the book with a fairly significant sort of thematic notion of, of, of what I thought his career and, and his music represented in the course of our, you know, American and Western mm-hmm. uh, culture in the course of the last 50, 60 years. And it really allowed me to kind of, you know, dig as, dig as deeply as I could uh, from these different perspectives and, and, and then write about him with the kind of sort of freedom and, and uh, sort of grand vision of, of, you know, sort of a novelist in, 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 to a degree. Um, and there was a lot I found very, you know, extraordinarily dramatic, um, and and you know, socially, culturally significant, just about his, you know, the prosaic life that he led, you know, you know, in between making mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. incredible records. In fact, um, you've said that your family and Simon's family share the Jewish immigrant experience. Can you expand on that? Yeah, well, you know, I grew up, you know, I was born in New York and I actually went back and, and spent about five years living and, and working there in the mid-90s. But my real experience of of growing up as a Jewish kid in, in you know, in Seattle in the 60s and 70s and beyond was really feeling almost no connection to the past. You know, my parents, I mean, uh, both of my parents were born in the country, um, in our country, and um, uh, but but the, the fact that we were Jewish, the fact that 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 we had this connection to to Russia and Eastern Europe, really was more. It was like you know I heard so little about it. It was like recalling a you know a book I had only sort of read many years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, it was not a very vibrant or very real thing. You know, in my part of Seattle, you know, we had Irish kids and Italian kids and african-american kids but ultimately we were all just sort of kids and everybody you know nobody it took me years to figure out that my uh... neighbor a couple doors down was was italian that his family were roman catholics and that's why he couldn't play football with us on sunday mornings um, you just you, people were just sort of accepted as as who they were in that moment which is a very west coast thing uh, you know, sort of the encapsulation of sort of that American ideal of assimilation. Mm-hmm. And Paul's music, I thought, really, you know, especially as he has evolved from style to style and culture and sound and nation to nation and, and still managed to make songs that, even though they spoke musically and rhythmically in entirely different tongues, they were still so, uh, uh, you know, they still spoke so richly of Paul's experience 
you know, as a person mm-hmm. in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, it's that kind of assimilation, I think, that that is sort of the essence of the American experience. Mm-hmm. Well, going back to his roots, I mean, he he was born wasn't in New Jersey, but the family moved to Queens in this kind of sort of suburban development in the city of of New York. I mean, not really, really upscale, but, you know, these were people who were on the on the way up. That that basically correct? Yeah, I mean, his part of Kew Gardens Hills was, was I think, predominantly Jewish, but there were a lot of people, uh, you know, in different parts of the neighborhood and in the neighboring neighborhoods who came from completely different backgrounds. And I think there were small amounts of, of kind of, uh, you know, sort of cultural clashes and tribalism that you sort of experience, I think, you know, another one of those kind of basic Ameri- or basic human responses uh, to people who are different, which is maybe a more regrettable one, <laughs> yeah. but um, this kind of instant sort of aggro response. Um, but Paul's, but you know, really, uh, you know, his family was, you know, was very much, uh, you know, in the midst of that of that process of becoming fully entirely American and really sort of expanding upon their own version of the American dream. Mm-hmm. Paul's father, uh, you know, who was the son of the actual immigrant who came from uh, the the uh, uh, Yugo-Hungarian Empire mm-hmm. in 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 the early first years of the 20th century, um, they, uh, uh, you know, uh, he was a tailor. He made European-style cloaks and capes and that sort of thing. The grandfather so Paul's did. Paul's dad yeah. was. Uh, Louis Simon, and he was a musician and became, at a very young age, sort of a part of working bands and joined the Musicians' Union and spent the first 20, 30 years of his adult life working as a, you know, as a session musician and a band leader, yeah. uh, you know, playing society shows and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but you know, he wanted nothing to do with the synagogue. He didn't want anything to do with religion. He didn't want anything to do with the old world Jewish sort of culture in New York City. Uh, and like a lot of people, I mean, the neighborhood that they lived in was sort of a starter suburb. They all wanted to end up mm-hmm. in the Tony suburbs around Long Island and uh, Westchester County and, and New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very much, if you've ever read any books by Philip Roth and you know, uh, about growing up in Newark and being, you know, a super ambitious and seething son of, of Jewish immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've always felt like Paul Simon, uh, the story of Paul Simon would have been a great novel for, mm-hmm. you know, for Philip Roth mm-hmm. to write if he wrote these kinds of multi-generational, right. cultural, <clears throat> social, uh, sort of epic novels. But, yeah. uh, he worked on a slightly smaller scale. I really was uh, fascinated with your, your account of uh, Lou Simon, uh, who sometimes went by Lee Sims. Uh, he anglicized his name when he uh, had a had an orchestra, a bass player. Uh, and on the one hand, I was, well, I, I get the impression on the one hand, uh, Paul Simon probably gets some of his interest in music to some extent, or you know, it's supported by his father. But at some point, doesn't the fa- the father kind of becomes jealous of Paul's success because uh, Lou Simon ends up going back to college, gets his Ph.D. I think to teach music, and he he keeps telling Paul, "Oh, gee, you know, you should have something to fall back on." Well, it's not that so much. I mean, I, even at the time, I mean, Lou was a uh, a bass player 
uh, and had worked consistently, you know, I think since he signed into the the union, certainly the, the New York branch, he had been a part of the New Jersey uh, branch of the Musicians Union earlier, uh, but once he went to college and established himself in New York City, uh, just across the river from Newark, um, he was known professionally as Lee Sims, and, and a lot of musicians, a lot of ethnic musicians in those days, you know, just to make it easier to get hired and not worry about being discriminated against, would adapt um, uh, very kind of uh, uh, non-ethnic, somewhat sort of generic-sounding American names like Lee Sims. Uh, but but Lou, um, and you know, had second thoughts about music. It wasn't he, you know, he had higher ambitions, and he began to realize that his career in music wasn't going to take him there. So he got involved in education, and eventually, I think, got his PhD in linguistics or or teaching, uh, uh, you know, basic education mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, reading and and like that, uh, and ultimately did win his you know get his PhD out of that and 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 lectured at at uh, CCNY for a few years at the, toward the end of his career, um, but he uh, uh, you know but again I mean we talk about people who freely adapt other names I mean that's another part of that assimilation process mm-hmm. and it's something that's very common to uh, you know to immigrants not just in showbiz, but everywhere else, you mm-hmm. kind of want to sort of smooth down the things that make you so very different from everyone else and, uh, you know, and, and just kind of fit in. You know, you can still be yourself, but you just come with new packaging. Mm-hmm. And Paul took that up almost instantly uh, when he and Artie, you know, had their first album out, or excuse me, their first singles out when they were still in high school. They performed as Tom and Jerry, mm-hmm. uh, which is partially a... Uh, an invention of the record company that signed them up. But, you know, Paul freely added a last name. You know, he became Jerry Landis and spent the next eight years of his career trying to be a pop songwriter, performer, producer, you know, as Jerry Landis. There was a vast community of people who knew him only as Jerry Landis and a vast community of people around his college and uh, where he grew up, who knew him only as Paul Simon and, and had no idea that Jerry Landis, uh, who they would occasionally hear on the radio, was actually their friend Paul. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, there's this whole sense of flexible identity and, um, and uh, uh, you know, being able to kind of uh, reform yourself in a slightly different way or a radically different way and not have to account for the difference, not have to reconcile the fact that, wait, you're actually, you know, you're actually Paul Simon, not Jerry Landis, like how, you know. Uh, So, you know, it's a complicated thing, but again, I think it's a very common American story. Okay. You're listening to the Historian's Podcast. Joining us is Peter Ames Carlin, author of Homeward Bound, The Life of Paul Simon. Uh, More with uh, author Peter Ames Carlin in just a moment. This is Bob Cutmore here at the Historian's Podcast. We depend on you, our listeners, to help us pay for production expenses. If you enjoy the podcast, please donate online at gofundme.com forward slash historians2016. Or you can send a check made out to Bob Cutmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. That's Bob Cutmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. 
On this episode of the podcast, we're talking with Peter Ames Carlin about his book, Homeward Bound, The Life of Paul Simon. Here's here's what I gather about the uh, young Paul Simon, and maybe this is the way he is, uh, is today. Number one, uh, he's kind of scrappy. He's also short. He was on the short end of of uh, maybe some bullying, but he kind of give it ba- gave it back. I gather he was became uh, maybe I don't know if it's an exaggeration, quite a fighter. Uh, but he was certainly ambitious and assertive, and he, he was he was always um, you know always seemed to have a direction that he was going in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, he was fiercely ambitious. Uh, from the start, and I think, you know, his father was the same way, um, and, uh, you know, he wanted to make a, a big success of himself. Um, you know, his father imagined that he was going to do it through being a lawyer um, or a businessman of some sort or, or a, a college professor. I mean, Paul had always done incredibly well in school um, and, and, and got through, you know, when he finished college, he just sort of on a whim took, the you know, the law, you know, law boards, you know, to go to law school to test and aced it, and so went off to you know Brooklyn College to, to study law, and um, but then turned out that the one thing he lacked uh, in in the skill set of, of 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 you know aspiring attorneys is any real interest in the law, uh, or at least mm. the uh, yeah. you know the intricacies of it. So uh, so he lasted about a term and a half, and then just couldn't stand it anymore, and, and finally bailed. Um, but uh, but at the same time, he had honed this incredible career, you know, this this incredible desire to make it in music, and um, you know, and from the start, even when he and Artie were thirteen, they knew, you know, and, and were writing their first silly, goofy high school kid tunes, uh, you know, if they felt like they had that one was was better than the others, they would. Um, they, you know, they would send it, uh, they, they'd copyright it. Uh, Paul would get his dad to write the lead sheet, you know, in music mm-hmm. notation and fire it down to the uh, to the Smithsonian for it to, or excuse me, not the Smithsonian, but the Library, Library of Congress, Congress yeah. to get it copyrighted. And, uh, you know, and then they would take it around to the different record companies in Midtown, hoping that some producer or record company owner or, you know, anyone would hear it hear some promise and sign them up to do you know put the record out um which was you know but they but the, you know he knew how the levers operated and so you know in some ways it's surprising but in many ways not surprising at all that they did get that deal when they were still in high school to record this tune they'd written called hey Schoolgirl," and due to luck and and skill and and a certain amount of of graft uh the song became a huge hit in um uh, on the East Coast mm-hmm. in 1957, winter 58, and uh, it sold a, enough copies in the region to hit the middle part of the Hot 100 mm. in the Billboard National Charts. And, uh, you know, they put out a bunch of records after to follow up on that success, but they all kind of flopped, and the, the boys went off to college and, and didn't really work in a significant way together until after they had graduated and had sort of mutually developed interests in uh, in folk music. Yeah, and that and, happened uh, for... And they began to perform as, as, as Simon and Garfunkel. And that interest in folk music, I believe, began for Paul Simon at Queens College, where he was a fraternity man, ultimately president of his fraternity, right? Yeah, very much. Um, 
he was and very involved in the fraternity and left a big imprint on a lot of the people that he that he encountered there um you know he joined it was a it was a jewish frat i think they were well known for having a lot of the most successful uh men on campus in their in their organization uh you know it was you know paul was naturally drawn to it and uh and once he got involved uh you know he very quickly rose up the ladder and and made a lot of interesting changes you know he took you know in most fraternities during rush week or hazing week or whatever they kind of humiliate their uh their pledges and they make them suffer and then you know welcome the the best of them into the club whereas with you know Paul decided you know and convinced his fraternity brothers to get rid of the physical humiliation and that stuff and instead um, you know, instead of throwing eggs at these people and and making them like lie in mud puddles or, what, or whatever they do, um, he developed this kind of uh, sort of uh, uh, inquisitor type of of interview, where they would, you know, a certain number of the, the leaders of the of the fraternity would call each of the pledges to a room and they would drill them on their philosophical and religious and 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 intellectual ideas and ideals and really push them to kind of get a sense of what sort of people they were and who they wanted to be and that's how they haze them you know sort of forcing them to confront themselves and their own weaknesses and promises and um you know and, and that's a huge difference um he worked very hard to try to uh to desegregate the frat um wasn't quite successful at first, but I think eventually the movement that he started very quickly did uh, end up with the national mm-hmm. fraternity changing its rules. So he had quite a bit of, of impact on people's lives, even when he wasn't playing music. The time grows short. Let me try to get this one in. Uh, he's uh, Paul Simon is now married to Edie Brickell. She is 24 years his junior, I think, something like that. Uh, and they had this incident back in 2014 where the cops were called, but apparently they've survived that. Yeah. Well, it's a very complicated thing. I mean, I think the initial reports made it seem like, oh, there was like this domestic, you know, battle at the Simon house. And, you know, we all know how that story usually goes, which is the guys beating up, you know, his wife. Unfortunately, but in this case, you know, uh, Edie Brickell is, is, I believe, six feet tall, and Paul is about five, two or three, somewhere around there. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, I, it was sort of interesting. He had said something that was hurtful to her, and, and she went off to sort of have a glass of wine or a bottle of wine and simmer down, but it, it only kind of fired her up, and she went to confront Paul and sort of, you know, by police accounts was sort of shoving him around and he picked up the phone and dialed 911 as a way to make her back off, but uh, the the call rang through and even though he hung up right after they picked up the phone, you know, the 911 people are clever enough to know that that's often code for get out here as fast as you possibly can. So they came roaring out and I think what we, what happened was a, you know, a, a, a couple had been in a long-term marriage um, having a particularly bad night, you know, and, and fighting, and, and this one time it got kind of out of control. Um, but other than that, uh, you know, I, it's been, it seems like it's been smooth sailing for them. They definitely haven't ended up in, you know, getting busted uh, for domestic problems. 
since then. Okay, so. <laughs> and just about five minutes left. Let me direct it uh, uh, this way. Uh, you have a great st- uh, story that I'd not seen uh, about how he had, how Simon wrote the Sound of Silence. You know, it sounds like he was mm-hmm. sort of hit, hit bottom or something like that, and it, the tune started to come to him. Yeah, he was. It was the fall of '63, and he'd been writing folk songs for just about a year, maybe a little under a year, um, and had written a few ones that you know, one or two of which we still know today. Um, but um, uh, I guess you know, it was the late fall of '63. Uh, I think uh, uh, President Kennedy had just been assassinated. Paul, I think, had severe doubts about law school. Uh, and I think felt very lost about where he was headed and, and what, you know, his life was going to amount to. And so he went into his, one of the favorite places he had uh, to play his guitar and write in, which was his the bathroom in his family's house. And he would sit on the floor, um, turn on the sink uh, uh, t- to make a kind of white noise, and uh, and turn off the lights and just sit there on the floor with the water running um, just following his visions and his thoughts and, you know, his sort of melodic sensibility, and began to write this song, which was really sort of encapsulated a lot of, you know, not only his internal feelings of, of feeling lost and detached from society, um, but also uh, 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 sort of picking up on this kind of national malaise that had suddenly you know, begun in the wake of, of Kennedy's assassination, which mm-hmm. was, you know, such a horrifying event and uh, turned a moment that had been so hopeful into a des- kind of emotional yep. national and, desolation. And if, if I could try to just um, sneak in one more thing, uh, I'm an sure. old radio DJ from the, like, I was working radio in the 70s when he, when Simon was putting out hit after hit after hit, you know, basically after the Simon and Garfunkel uh, era, that was quite a, a burst for him. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, I mean, he had a certain amount of fear about what, what, what he could possibly amount to without Artie. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, again, I mean, I think he found the confidence and began to work in, you know, it's when he really began to develop his love of, or, you know, his of rhythm and blues and gospel, certainly writing and, and performing in those styles. And it really, you know, it, it was like a shot of fire uh, down his gullet. And, and again, I mean, I remember that's when I was in, you know, in grade school and middle school. It was just, you know, it was like there was always a new Paul Simon hit on the radio from, you know, Mother and Child Reunion to Me and Julio and Kodachrome and... Uh, uh, it just, you know, loved me like a rock, and it just went went on and on and on and on. And he was a, such a dominant figure in the '70s on the, you know, definitely on the radio charts. Mm. So uh, yeah, it was amazing. And and for the longest time, it was like he couldn't put a foot wrong. Um, and that, you know, and, and when he did even briefly in the in the late early '80s, you know, he came back with this huge roar with Graceland in the mm-hmm. mid '80s. Mm-hmm. I probably hate to end on a down note, but with the the Cape Man, right? His Broadway musical that didn't play. Yeah, well, you know, there were some key mistakes that he um, uh, that he made with that product. Tried to, you know, the Cape Man was going to be his big Broadway musical. He had this idea that the Broadway musical had kind of foundered creatively, uh, and which he probably wasn't wrong about. 
And so he thought that, well, now it was time for people who made real rock and roll music and popular music to kind of take over, uh, you know, the Broadway musical stage. And so he wrote this, this play that was flawed in a lot of ways, but he had a very difficult time listening to other people um, and I think understanding exactly how collaborative the Broadway musical production had to be um, wrote a ton of beautiful music. There's his record, uh, uh, Songs from the Cape Man, is, is a mm-hmm. really, really beautiful record. Um, well, and, Pete, a lot of, you know, and, and, and a lot of the music in the play was, was, was fantastic, and the performances were great, but, but the story just didn't... Uh, uh, he'd had plenty of warnings from people saying the story isn't really going to fly. Okay. Peter, I'm awful sorry. We're, we're just out of time. Peter Ames yeah. Carlin is author of Homeward Bound, The Life of Paul Simon. Uh, it's uh, published by Henry Holt and Company. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudworth.